Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time, August 30th, 2020. Jesus makes the first of four passion predictions in our gospel today. Peter's response is to rebuke Jesus while Jesus himself indicts Peter for having the mind of Satan. Our Lord explains further that not only will he himself suffer, but each and every one of his disciples will be called to suffer with him. Reading the gospel with an open heart, we discover that following Christ means much more than simply professing Jesus as Lord. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Welcome back to Sunday Dive. Today we are talking about the readings for the 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time, continuing our walk through the Gospel of Matthew. We have a little bit of a transition in our Gospel today. We're slowly coming to um, kind of the end part of the gospel. I mean, we're at Matthew 16. And so we're going to see a transition, a very clear transition from um, the evangelist Matthew, um, looking to Jesus's, uh, his death um, and his ministry in Jerusalem. Uh, Before we get too much into it, though, let's read the gospel together as usual. It's Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 27. I'm going to read from the revised standard version. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man for what he has done. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 27. So I said that Matthew offers a transition for us, and we find it in the first words of our gospel here from that time Jesus began. Those same words occurred earlier in Matthew's gospel. They occurred at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began. So the exact same five words, from that time, Jesus began. But at Matthew 4, verse 17, he begins to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. It occurs right after his um, temptations in the desert, which are actually um, fairly related to the content of our gospel today. We'll get that get to that in a few minutes. So the uh, the transition at Matthew four seventeen comes after the temptation in the desert. And then um, the detail that Jesus settles in Capernaum. He leaves Nazareth and settles in Capernaum. And there he begins his public ministry, a public ministry that is centered around the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. But here in Matthew uh, 
chapter 16, verse 21, we get this transition point again from that time Jesus began. And what does he begin to do? He begins to do um, two things, really. One of them is more implied. Matthew tells us specifically that he shows his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer these many things, be killed and be raised from the dead. So Jesus is beginning to um, prepare his disciples for his his main purpose in his public ministry. So Jesus did not come simply to um, preach and teach and heal people and then live a normal life, right? Be assumed into heaven, perhaps. Rather, Jesus came primarily to suffer and die and in so doing to save us, okay? So that's what Jesus uh, begins to do in this transition point. And implied there is this idea that Jesus is begin to is going to begin his um his journey um, both physically and spiritually, if you will, to Jerusalem, okay? And so on his journey to Jerusalem or in his journey to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem itself, he is going to be rejected. And Matthew is explicit for us um, as to who is going to reject him. Matthew says the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, okay? And for us, that essentially means the entire Jerusalem Jewish establishment is going to reject our Lord. So the elders, um, this could be a reference to, for example, the Sanhedrin, okay? So they were the the ruling body, the ruling Jewish body um, in Jerusalem. The chief priests, of course, um, could be a reference to the high-ranking priests as well as um, the chief priests, plural, although this is an aside, but technically there really shouldn't be multiple chief priests. So the office of high priest, which Matthew uh, doesn't necessarily use that language here, but nevertheless, it's interesting to consider that the office of high priest uh, was originally intended to be for life. The priesthood in first century Jerusalem was very corrupt, very, very corrupt. Priesthood was bought and sold, um, I could do a whole podcast on this. It's very fascinating, actually, uh, to get the the history behind kind of the 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 few decades leading up to Jesus's you know appearance at his birth, and then the the decades um, in which he walked the earth. Pretty tumultuous time. So, anyways. It's always a little tongue in cheek when we get this like chief priests and multiple high priests, especially in the gospel of John. He's a little tongue in cheek about it because there really aren't supposed to be multiple high priests. The office was for life. And so just like um, in typical fashion with our popes, I know we're in kind of an irregular situation here since um, Pope Benedict uh, resigned. Nevertheless, it's more normal to just have one pope, right? Same in Judaism. You just had one high priest. And so um, there's kind of an implication in it of the corrupt nature of the priesthood. So the elders are going to reject Jesus. The chief priests are going to reject Jesus. 
the scribes are going to reject Jesus. So the scribes are like the theologians. Okay. Um, so if we had, you know, if we think about our Catholic world, if all the theologians kind of together rejected someone, that would be like the idea of the scribes rejecting someone. So the whole Jewish Jerusalem establishment is going to reject Jesus as well as not as big of a surprise, but as well as the entire Roman establishment, right? In the, in the figure of Pontius Pilate. Mind you, this is the first uh, prophecy, the first prediction of Jesus's death, right? And so we don't get from Matthew the specific language that Jesus uses. Matthew provides us just a little bit of a summary. He begins to show his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. But a glimmer of hope on the third day, he's going to be raised. This would have been jarring for the disciples. I know constantly throughout this podcast, I urge all of us to put ourselves into the place of first century Jews and the followers of our Lord. And this is a difficult place, uh, a difficult area for us to completely put ourselves in their shoes because the cross for good reason is ubiquitous to us. When we think of Jesus, we think of the cross. And, And I'm not saying that these are bad things. These are good things. I certainly wouldn't want it any other way, but nevertheless, it's it it can feel almost impossible to put ourselves in a place where we know Christ but we don't know his end we don't know the cross and so Jesus here is beginning to show his disciples that he and his cross are one and and I have to even take it back a step further but that the cross is even in the picture because up to now, it's not really in the picture. In a, in a cultural context, the cross itself is very jarring. So we have evidence um, from, uh, from secular writings um, that the cross or crucifixion, the act of crucifixion, was something that people did not like to talk about. Even Roman citizens like the lay Roman citizens, if you will. So I can't speak for the soldiers who committed the punishment of crucifixion, who procured it, or those who ordered it. But the everyday Roman citizen walking down the street, we get an idea, a feeling from writings at the time, did not like to talk about crucifixion and was even possibly a little embarrassed about the fact of crucifixion and about the fact that the Romans had perfected the quote unquote art of crucifixion because it was so heinous and brutal. It was a little bit embarrassing, right? Um, You know, some of you listening might have different feelings, although I would, I would argue with you about them, but um, I, an, an example that maybe can translate for us would be like the atomic bomb. I'm proud to be an American. I feel grateful to be an American. I know our country is not perfect, 
Um, but I have to say the atomic bomb is a little bit of an embarrassing thing for the history of our country. Similar idea, okay? We get similar kind of feeling we get from secular writings around this time that the crucifixion was so heinous that it was something that that people did not want to talk about. And so with that in mind, I draw that picture for you to kind of give you an idea of how jarring it would be for Jesus to introduce the cross into his future and to introduce it into his future for his disciples as well. And because if we continue reading, he's going to tell them essentially, not only do you need to become comfortable with the idea that I'm going to die, but you need to become comfortable with the idea of the cross as well. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if it's not jarring enough that Jesus is preparing them for his crucifixion, for his death, he's also using language that seems to very clearly speak of impending crucifixion for his disciples as well. So Jesus has definitely uh, kicked things up a notch. And where our gospel picks up at Matthew 16, 21 is directly after our gospel from last week, which is um, Peter's profession, right? This is like the, the, the high point in some ways of, of St. Peter. It doesn't last very long. God always finds ways to allow us to embrace humility. And Peter is forced to embrace humility here, uh, but he kind of deserves it because he's going to end up rebuking Jesus. But before we kind of get to that, there's a sense, if you're reading through the narrative in Matthew's gospel, that the profession has taken place. So Peter, speaking for the entire 12, professes Jesus as Lord and Messiah, Christ and Lord, right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's deeply important that they've they've gotten to that place. And so it, there's, a, there's a sense in which they've gotten to that place perhaps. And so now Jesus is willing to, he's going to, he's going to kick it up because it's not enough to just profess Jesus as Christ and Lord. Many people in our society and even in the way that we speak about Christianity hold an idea that to be a follower of Christ is to profess him as Christ and Lord. To be a follower of Jesus is to profess him as Christ and Lord. But Jesus himself, in speaking of what it means to follow him, does not say following him simply means professing him. In fact, because these two gospels are right, you know, next to each other, the gospel of the profession and then the gospel on uh, what many people will call the cost of discipleship, 
these two, one following on the heels of another, paints a picture for us of our Lord saying, good, it is good that you profess me as Christ and Lord, but that is not what it means to follow me. And we have to let that sink in. It is good for us to profess Jesus as Christ and Lord, but that is not what it means to follow him. That is not sufficient for following him. I think this aspect of Christianity and this lesson in our gospel this Sunday has been lost in many ways in Christianity. It has been lost. What does Jesus say? If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To follow our Lord means to deny myself and to take up my cross. It doesn't mean to just say Jesus is Christ and Lord. That is insufficient. Peter appears to get the idea here and is bothered by it, right? Because I kind of jumped ahead in, in our discussion of our gospel here, jumping ahead to verse 24, but let's let's move back So Jesus begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And how does Peter react? Verse 22, Peter took him, Jesus, and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Okay, this is... This ever almost everything in this gospel is really jarring. Um, this is jarring as well. I mean, and again, we can gloss over it. Um, I generally like to have a more positive view of St. Peter than many people do. Um, many writers and preachers will talk about Peter like he's a complete idiot. I don't like that view. I think Peter's pretty smart but he is impetuous and here his impetuousness comes out to an embarrassing degree. Jesus is taken aside by St. Peter and rebuked by him. St. Peter who just professed Jesus to be Christ and Lord, you are the son of the living God, but I'm also going to, I'm going to pull you aside and correct you. Now we, we laugh at this, right? We laugh at this. Peter, Peter, you just said he's the son of the living God. And then you just pulled him aside and you're correcting him. We, we mock Peter. And yet, do we not do the same? Do we not do the same? Jesus, you are the Lord, the son of the living God. But I know, um, I know how to do this better. Like I've got a plan and uh, here, let me, let me just share it with you. And it's better than your plan, right? Do we not do this over and over and over again? Peter took him, began to rebuke him saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Okay. Interesting phrase that it, it, God forbid, Lord, it's an idiom 
and it's it's a great translation because uh, God forbid in our own language is kind of an idiom a little bit, right? So the Greek is Haleos soy, Haleos soy. And at other places, it's translated far be it from you, far be it from you. So for example, at uh, First Chronicles 11, 18, I know this is an Old Testament text, but remember, um, we have a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. So in the Septuagint translation of First Chronicles eleven eighteen, we have this idiom here also used in our gospel at Matthew 16, Haleos soy, and it's translated far be it from you. So first Chronicles 11, uh, 19, sorry, I was saying 11, 18, 11, 19, far be it from me before my God that I should do this. Okay. So same idea, God forbid, Lord, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This, there's an idea in the language of like, of far be it from you, Lord, to do such a thing. Um, there's an idea of even um, uh, may God have mercy on you that this may not happen to you. And and that there's there's so many layers to to what Peter is saying here. But there's definitely an idea of both. I'm uncomfortable with this, and I pray that you are spared from this. And I, I would even add a third layer, layer to it, which comes through with Peter's impetuousness of like, I shall not let this happen to you, or I do not approve. I think there's all, there's all three of these things in here. So many mixed emotions, and you know, when we are, uh, we as humans are confronted with jarring things, our reaction is is typically mixed with multiple emotions. And so many of these, these layers of emotion are coming through in Peter's response. God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And if there's layers of emotion coming through in Peter's response, we're going to get layers of emotion coming through in Jesus's response. Maybe not layers of emotion, maybe just straight intensity. Because what happens at verse 23? Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan get behind me, Satan. So there's, there's just so much jarring going on here. Let's, let's return for a split second back to Peter here who rebukes Jesus. That's a weird thing to do considering that he's, as I mentioned, he's just professed Jesus to be the son of the living God. So it's a little weird to correct the son of the living God. But even if we just take it on a more human level, um, it is very, very uncommon in uh, Jewish tradition for a disciple to correct his rabbi, his master. You just, you wouldn't do that. That's disrespectful. There's even, um, there's even some evidence that it was considered that that a, a disciple, a follower, a student should have so much respect for his rabbi, for his teacher that it was almost disrespectful for a student to teach in the presence of his own teacher, his own master, okay? Because there's there's kind of an idea that, you know, you should yield the floor, for example. 
you know, say I'm teaching a class and one of my former professors walked in, if he was, you know, if this was first century Judaism and he had been my rabbi, it would be disrespectful for me to not interrupt myself and yield the floor to him. Because that's how much respect a rabbi garnered or demanded from his students. And so for Peter to rebuke Jesus, even just on a human level, with the cultural expectations, is like, (gasps) what is he doing? We can even talk about the fact that, and, and this is a beautiful image because Jesus talks about following him, the fact that as a rabbi moved through a place with his disciples, the disciples always walked behind him. They wouldn't walk next to him. Out of respect, the disciples always walked behind their rabbi. And so we get this this idea here of what it means to respectfully follow Jesus, right? To stand behind him and to go wherever he goes, not to try to get next to him, to try to like wedge him into a certain direction, to try to kind of move him and influence him the way you want him to go, as Peter appears to be doing here. No, the disciples' place is right behind our Lord. It's right behind the master following him just happily following him. And so it's fascinating too here that when Jesus responds to Peter's rebuke, what does he say? He says, get behind me, get behind me. This idea perhaps of Jesus quite literally reminding Peter of of his place, Where is Peter's place? Well, Peter's place as a disciple is behind the Lord that he might follow him. And Peter has moved from following him in this moment. And so Jesus then rebukes Peter's rebuke and says, get behind me. This idea that you have moved from following me in this rebuke. And you must move back. I'm going to tell you your place. And I know that's that's very strong language. Like when we hear about people telling other people what their place is, it's usually, you know, disrespectful and out of anger. But if there's one person in the world that we want us to, to that we want to tell us what our place is, it's Jesus. <laughs> we should pray for him to regularly put us in our place. It might be a little painful, but that's what we want. We want Jesus to put us in our place. And so here he puts Peter back in his place. Interestingly enough, this is a little bit of a side note, but there's also some scholars who suggest that um, this, this response of Jesus, get behind me, is perhaps a mistranslation of a Semitic idiom that, that should be translated, get from behind me. Now, this kind of takes the opposite view, and yet at the same time, it forwards the same idea. Now, this, I just want to clarify again, there's there's a fair amount of debate on this idea, 
But nevertheless, it's an interesting idea that if what Jesus is saying is get behind me or even get from behind me, it's this idea that however Peter goes on this, however Peter persists on this is going to reflect his following or lack thereof. In other words, if Jesus is saying, get from behind me, he's saying, you are no longer my disciple if you hold to this view. Now, I I like the idea a little bit more of Jesus saying, get behind me. And that's what our scriptures actually say of him putting him back in his place. I want you to follow me. And so you have to get behind me, right? But nevertheless, very interesting idea. Does Jesus simply say, get behind me? No. (laughs) Again, so much jarring language in this gospel. He says, get behind me, Satan. Holy smokes. I've always wondered, you know, if you're doing like Lexio Divina on this this, uh, gospel and you're imagining the rest of the the 12, the 11 in this scene, it's probably like, whoa, what is going on here? Get behind me, Satan. And it's fascinating because in our previous gospel, what does Jesus do? Gives Peter a new name. You are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And what does he do here? So in response, in last week's gospel, in response to to Peter's declaration, Jesus gives him a new name. In our gospel today, in response to Peter's declaration, Jesus gives him a new name, Satan. Now, I would argue that Jesus is by no means saying that Peter in this instance is Satan or Peter is possessed by Satan. But I do believe that Jesus is saying Peter is speaking on behalf of Satan and he's taken into his mind the logic of Satan. And it confirms for us what we got last week, which is this idea that Peter speaks revelation, right? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Peter speaks revelation when he speaks on behalf of God, when he speaks of the mind and the heart of God. And he fails to do that when he speaks only in his human capacity. What does he do when he speaks only in his human capacity? He speaks on the side of men, as Jesus goes on to say, not on the side of God. Now, is there a precedent for this response? Is there a precedent for calling Peter Satan because of his rebuke? I would say yes. And the precedent is earlier in our gospel. And it's at Matthew chapter four, verse eight. And this is in the narrative of the temptation when Jesus is tempted by the devil three times. And verse eight is the beginning of the last temptation. So uh, it tells us in Matthew 4, 8, again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Now, why does Jesus respond so emphatically here? And how is this related to what's going on in our gospel? Because I would argue that what Satan offers to Jesus here at Matthew chapter four, verse eight, is essentially the same thing that Peter is offering in a more limited capacity, but nonetheless that Peter is offering to Jesus at Matthew 16, 22, which is this idea that you can have the kingdom without the cross. Sometimes we read through the temptations, the temptation narrative, and we can become a little bit perplexed because we can find ourselves asking ourselves, especially here in this final temptation, what exactly is Satan tempting Jesus with? We can understand, you know, tempting Jesus with food when he's been fasting for 40 days, but tempting Jesus with the kingdoms of the world if he would worship him, like you're tempting God to worship you, Satan, who was created by God. Like, how is there a temptation there? But the temptation is in the promise that the devil offers. What does the devil offer Jesus here in this third temptation? All the kingdoms of the world. And what did Jesus come to do? He came to redeem the kingdoms of the world to reconcile the world to himself, a world that had become enslaved to sin and Satan. And so what Satan is saying here at the very beginning of our gospel is I will give you what you came to reclaim if you only worship me. And this is a temptation because Jesus loves the world. He wants the world back for himself. And his plan is to redeem the world through his death on the cross. And so Jesus responds emphatically at verse 10, begone Satan, precisely because what Jesus or what the devil is offering Jesus here is the effects of redemption reconciling the world to himself, right? Without the cross, without the agony of the cross. The devil is saying, you don't have to suffer. I'll give you a way out. And what is Peter saying in our gospel? You don't have to suffer, Lord. There must be a way out. How does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. And he says, you are a hindrance to me for you are not on the side of God, but on the side of men. That word here translated hindrance in Greek, it's scandalon, scandal. You are a scandal to me, but even more literally translated it's stumbling stone. So scandalon has been, you know, brought into our English language as scandal. And that's a fascinating thing to meditate upon that. You are a scandal to me, but 
it's more literally translated in the Greek, a stumbling stone. So not only does Jesus give Peter another name, Satan, but he also brings in the idea of a rock again. It's really fascinating, the parallels between this passage and our passage from last week. Get behind me saying, you are a stumbling stone to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. You are not thinking as God thinks, but as men think. And how do men think? We are motivated by avoiding suffering. We are motivated by avoiding suffering. And this is not like something that comes from a Christian anthropology. This is not an idea that just comes from a Christian understanding of humanity. You can find this idea in like, um, you know, the early Greek philosophers, Aristotle, for example, will forward the idea that we are motivated primarily by a desire to um, uh, obtain good and avoid evil, avoid suffering. And so what is the most base way that men think? Avoid suffering. How does God think though? God is not afraid of suffering. I mean, God experiences the physiological uh, experience of suffering, the emotional experience of suffering. So if I, you, you could argue with me if I say God is not afraid of suffering and then I remind you that he sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane because he was so afraid of suffering. But so, so that's not what I mean. But what I mean is he doesn't draw back from suffering. He embraces suffering and he embraces it for whose sake he embraces it for my sake. Look at a cross any time of day and see a body writhing in pain and know that that suffering is for you. There is a God who does not draw back from pain, but rather embraces it for the sake of our salvation. And he is the God we have to follow. Are we willing to follow him? Or do we take the mind of men and take the mind of Satan? There's an interesting tradition and theology that Satan ended up disobeying God and falling from grace because he was granted a vision of the future in which he saw the creation of man in which he saw the incarnation, God in all his glory, almost shedding his glory to take on humanity. And if that's not enough to die on the cross, it's as if Satan saw what I just referenced a few seconds ago, that body writhing on the cross and, and saw that 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 body writhing on the cross, that's God. 
And Satan was offended by that. And Satan said to God, God forbid, that shouldn't happen to you. That's not right. You shouldn't stoop that low. And that was the mind of Satan. And unwilling to stomach the idea of a God so full of love that he, as uh, as St. Paul talks about in Philippians 2, 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Satan could not stomach that. But for God, it was necessary because in the cross, he has been glorified. St. Paul goes on to say at verse nine of Philippians two, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Why? Because Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave and being born in human likeness, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so that which is a stumbling block, according to St. Paul, a stumbling stone, because Paul himself uses that language. So for, uh, for example, at uh, Galatians 5, St. Paul talks about uh, uh, Galatians 5.11. He says, but if I, brethren, still preach circumcision, why am I still Persecuted. In that case, the stumbling stone of the cross has been removed. So, again, for Paul, this idea of the cross being a stumbling stone, this comes out more clearly in 1 Corinthians 122. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But he goes on at verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I love that. That's from my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians 1, 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. You are a hindrance to me for you are not on the side of God, but of men. And yet the wisdom of men is less, less intelligent than the foolishness of God. And what is God's foolishness? God's foolishness is the cross, which Paul is completely fine saying, calling a stumbling stone. And so it's fascinating because the stumbling stone makes stumbling stones. This idea of the cross 
turns men into scandalon, stumbling stones who try to get in the way of God's plans. That is what Satan did. He got in the way of God's plan, seeing the love of God. He disobeyed God and and took the world from God. But God took it back. And yet, we all are still faced with a choice a choice of who we follow. Do we follow the intelligence of men who look only to this life? Or do we follow the intelligence of God who understands that what profit is there in gaining the world but losing your soul? So we can turn to verse 24, continuing on in our gospel. Then Jesus, so Jesus rebukes Peter and then he turns to his his disciples and he makes it even more clear. (laughs) So he doesn't, Jesus doesn't soften the blow here at all. So Peter's upset with Jesus because Jesus says he's going to suffer. Jesus then rebukes Peter himself and says, you shall not stand in my way of suffering. And then he turns to the rest of them and says, and you also will suffer if you want to follow me. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the son of man is to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay every man for what he has done. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? The Greek word there actually is suke which can be translated life, but it can also be translated soul, which um, kind of really gets to the heart of the matter. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Friends, we are perpetually distracted by the comforts of the world when what we have before us is eternity. What is in the scales is eternity. Talk about, talk about the foolishness of God being wiser than human wisdom. We think we are so wise with our jobs and our life plans and our 401ks, our cars, our emergency funds, our investment portfolios, our high-yield checking accounts. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
if any man would come after me. So to come after him, what does that mean to follow him? If any man would follow him. And actually the Greek there, when it, when it translates here, would, it, it means like wishes, desires. If any man desires to come after me, if any man desires to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. At the beginning, I said that we have lost the idea of Christianity So if the idea of Christianity is to imitate Christ, to follow him, we have lost that idea for some watered down version of Christianity that says to follow Christ means to merely profess him as Lord. Jesus never says that. Rather, we have to deny ourselves take up the cross and follow him. We have to put ourselves to death in order to imitate him. Now you might be asking me, what does that look like? Well, for one, I think we need to make it a regular practice in our life that we become comfortable with the idea of martyrdom as much as is, uh, is possible becoming comfortable with that idea. But I, I, I bring this up because for those who were living in the first centuries of Christianity to become a Christian meant to embrace the, the very likely future of martyrdom. And we have lost that. We have lost that. We have, we have found ways to try to regain that. Uh, so many, uh, uh, many historians of Christianity will argue that religious life, consecrated life, grew out of a desire to imitate Christ in his death after martyrdom had, had kind of become... Uh, less of a reality. So, you know, Constantine legalizes Christianity. It's not now a death sentence to convert to Christianity. And so um, those Christians felt the sort of loss. How now do I, uh, how do I follow Christ to the cross if it's now legal to practice Christianity? And I'm not carted off to um, death. I'm not carted off to, you know, the lions, to the circus, because I'm Christian. And, and the, the way in which Christians sought to imitate Christ was to, to give themselves to him completely in this kind of consecrated life, right? We can think of um, monks and nuns who separate themselves from the world, who have austere practices of prayer and fasting, And they do that to put themselves to death and to offer themselves to Christ. And and just to kind of drive this home, maybe some of you have wondered before, you know, why why do priests, (laughs) quote unquote, get a sacrament? Why do married people, quote unquote, get a sacrament, but but consecrated people don't. Well, the the short answer is, well, Jesus just didn't institute a sacrament. But but the nicer answer is they did get a sacrament. It's called baptism. 
monks and nuns, there's not like a special sacrament for consecrated life because they already have a sacrament. It's the sacrament of baptism. And monks and nuns, those men and women who are living consecrated life are living their baptismal calls to a radical degree. Now, the beauty of all of this is that I'm assuming the vast majority of us listening are lay people and we are not excluded from a radical living of our baptismal call. St. Paul in our second reading um, kind of talks about this idea. And it's beautiful because, um, kind of side note here, and I'm watching the clock here. I know we're running a little long, but this is such good stuff. Um, Our second reading does not necessarily line up with our gospel reading. So it's not, um, the church doesn't always pick a second reading that, um, that uh, you know, for its, for its fittingness with the gospel. So as we've been reading through the gospel of Matthew chronologically, for the most part, if you paid attention in our second reading, we've been reading um, uh, chronologically for the most part through Romans. But here, um, serendipitously, and this does happen every so often, the the second reading, uh, the chronological kind of working through Romans that we're doing fits perfectly with our gospel. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I said that uh, many historians will propose that, you know, consecrated life was, was conceived of and sought after in order to find a spiritual martyrdom in the midst of, you know, legalized Christianity, in the midst of safe Christianity. And lay people, I said, uh, are not, you know, excluded from the radical living of our baptismal promises that uh, consecrated men and women do. We have a thousand ways as lay people in the world that we can do exactly as St. Paul says, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. This Greek word translated present is peristemi, peristemi, which uh, translates um, Hebrew words in the Old Testament in reference to liturgy. So animals in the temple were quote unquote peristemied before God. They were presented to God. And so what Paul is saying here is, Exactly as it kind of sounds, but with really, really specific, even technical language that really brings out the beautiful overtones here to to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, that idea of a living sacrifice is a little bit contradictory because, you know, in the temple, what was sacrificed, what was offered to God, that which was dead, 
You'd bring an animal, it would be slaughtered and it would be offered to God. And so there's an idea in which Paul is not precluding death. He's just saying that our lives can be a living death in which we follow Christ to the cross. And how exactly do we do this? Well, I could do a whole a whole podcast on this idea, but I'm running out of time. And, and Paul gives us an idea at verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. For Paul to die in Christ means to be conformed to Christ. That's why he says, do not be conformed to this world. How do we be conformed to Christ? by living radically our baptismal call, by praying regularly, by participating in the sacraments because it is the sacraments that transform us. And fascinatingly enough, I know we've been talking a lot about the Greek here, but the the actual Greek word here translated transformed is metamorphuste, which we get our word metamorphosis. Paul is literally talking about trans- transformation. To follow Christ means to become Christ. That is precisely why at 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul can say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the goal, friends, that we can say to the people in our lives, whether that be our children, our friends, our coworkers, other uh, people in our church, we can say to them, imitate me, follow me. Why? Because we are following Christ. We are following Christ. Each and every day, we are given an abundance of opportunities to put our own will and our own desires to death, to conform ourselves more fully to Christ, to give up on pride, to give up on anger, to give up on licentiousness, to give up on lust, to give up on anything that conforms us to the world that we might follow Christ, taking up our cross, staying close behind him and walking with him to Calvary so that we might present our bodies as a living sacrifice and profit not from the world, but profit from eternal life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul.